Well, good evening and welcome. My name is Tom Switzer. I'm the Executive Director here at the Centre for Independent Studies. And what an evening to be here to mark a special moment in our nation's history, uh, the 25th anniversary of the election of one of the most consequential prime ministers and governments in our nation's history. On March 2, 1996, John Howard and the Federal Coalition defeated the Labor government of Prime Minister Paul Keating. It was one of the biggest landslide elections in Commonwealth history. He went on to become the nation's second longest serving Prime Minister and he helped set the scene for the longest economic expansion in our nation's history since the gold rushes. Ably supported by several outstanding ministers, most notably Peter Costello, Alexander Downer, Peter Reith, Philip Ruddock, John Anderson, all past guests at CIS. John Howard was doggedly dedicated to using power to change our nation for the better. His government balanced the national books, wiped out government debt and cut taxes as it implemented the GST. Now it's true, John Howard was as given to paternalism and pork barrelling as many of his predecessors. Indeed, at various stages during the Howard years, CIS scholars, most notably Peter Saunders, subjected the government's fiscal, welfare and family tax policies to rigorous scrutiny and indeed criticism. However, it's fair to say that during John Howard's near 12-year tenure, Australians were a relaxed and self-confident people. Everything that should be up, income, economic growth, the stock market, the budget surplus, consumer business confidence, living standards was up, and everything that should be down, unemployment, inflation, and even historically speaking, interest rates was down. And with that, please join me in welcoming John Howard. Pretty good, Tom. You should have kept going. <laughs> well, I'm going to subject you to some scrutiny soon, so don't get carried away. Uh, welcome back to CIS. It's great to be here. Uh, I think I did my first CIS event in the 1980s. 1980s. This is a very good point because um, think tanks like to influence policy. And in those days, particularly in the late 70s and early 80s, when CIS really came about, we were championing a free market economic mm. reform agenda, and that was a very unfashionable thing at the time. Oh, it was very unfashionable. But over time, it became the orthodoxy in both major parties. Well, it did. I mean, it was certainly unfashionable, unheard of in the Labor opposition, uh, <laughs> which at that time was still led by Bill Hayden, for whom I incidentally have a very um, warm regard, and I wish him well. But uh, and, and, of course, inside the coalition, there was a belief that the policies of intervention had yeah. worked uh, during the Menzies-McEwen period and they ought to be continued. But what, of course, had happened is the world had changed and, and uh, uh, political parties had to change. And CIS has done a great, consistent job. And I'm not just being no, sure. polite in your company, but because yeah. uh, you weren't heard of then. No. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I was alive, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, you were, yeah, you're just, yeah, that's right. Uh, but you did a very good... You did. You kept our, the feet 
such feet who were, you know, available to the yeah. flame. Yeah, well, there were groups of us. There was CIS, the IPA, the Business Council of Australia, the Financial Reviews editorial page. I think it's fair to say the Australian and as people well. like the late Alan Wood as yep. an economic journalist Absolutely. from the Australian. Yes. Uh, he was quite outstanding. Yeah. It was a, and, Mac, and, and could I also say Max Walsh? Yes. Um, Max Walsh had an enormous influence on, on, on the relevance of economics to politics. Indeed. Now, we can talk about <laughs> economics very soon. Now, I, I said that you were the second oldest, sorry, second longest serving mm. Prime Minister, but you're also the second oldest Prime That's Minister right. in our history. So yeah. both times pinged by Robert Menzies. That's right. Now, the last three years of your Prime Ministership, so 65, 66, 67, the press were on your back about being a bit old and maybe you That's should right. pass the yeah. torch. Uh, Joe yet, Biden's 78. And Joe Biden's 78. It's, it, it, it's all relative. <laughs> do we discriminate against the elderly? Uh, no, I think um, it, it goes in phases. I mean, I remember uh, way back in... Um, uh, in, in, in the 60s, of course, everybody in American politics was young. John F. Kennedy. The Kennedy, his yeah. brothers, and, and, and all of the young group around them. Uh, look, these things just go yeah, but in mind face. You, mind you, we talked about this on Radio National the other day. If you go back to the mid-60s, the Prime Minister of the day, Robert Menzies, mm. the Deputy Prime Minister, John McEwen, the leader of the opposition, Arthur Corwell, they were all in their early 70s. And, of course, the average male life expectancy has increased by more than four, five years since. So, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Look, I, I don't think we actively discriminate against uh, uh, older people, and uh, I'm, I'm getting, you know, less enamoured of the concept, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 25 years ago, March yep. to 1996, you're at the Wentworth Hotel. We originally, by the way, wanted to go to the Wentworth Hotel, but it's a COVID, ho COVID we, we actually had hotel. our campaign headquarters at the Intercom. At the Intercontinental. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where we had the the sort of the family. That's where we. I actually got the results. Right, but you went to the... I went Wentworth. to the Intercon for the speech yeah. and, the, and, 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 and the gathering of the faithful. But Now, that was a pretty big victory. It's not quite up there with Fraser's landslides over Whitlam no. in the 70s or Harold Holt's over Corwell, but it was probably the fourth, one, one of the yeah. top five biggest mm. landslides mm. in Australian history. Were you shocked by the extent of your victory? Uh, look, I was surprised we won as many seats as we did. I thought we'd ultimately win, but we'd lost so often. <laughs> Uh, that I remember running around on polling day, calculating my head, and we might just win this seat and that yeah. seat. And, and in reality, um, uh, it was far better, but I didn't think that. And we've been conditioned because we had that uh, expectation of winning in 1990, expectation of winning yes. in 93, and, and um, we just, and the Labor Party was a formidable campaign machine. Yes. Uh, Keating was a very good campaigner. He was a very capable leader, and he, he was seen by the community by a lot of people in the community as, um, uh, as, as a good Prime Minister. On the other hand, he was widely disliked by sections of the community, particularly in what I might loosely call the outlying states. I mean, what Wayne Goss said about the baseball bats yeah. in Queensland was absolutely right. And they, you yourself uh, endured a lot of political personal setbacks. You were the leader of the opposition mm -hmm. in 1989. You were unceremoniously dumped by your colleagues in favour of Andrew Peacock. You then said... Uh, a political comeback would be a bit like uh, a Lazarus with a triple bypass. I think you ran again against Downer in 94. You then no, lost no, that. I ran, I ran after the 93 election. And I you ran lost against that, John and you lost Houston. that, and then you lost to Downer in 94. No, no, I didn't lose it, and I didn't stand because I had no hope of winning. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> and, and, and you said, okay, but then you said, you said I, I accept I'll never be leader again of the Liberal Party, but you bounced back. Yeah. Um, you're ridiculed at various stages uh, throughout that period. 
What was it about your animal instincts? How did you do it? Was your family, your friends? Oh, it was a combination. My family was magnificent. Me and Jeanette and the three children, they always uh, uh, wanted the best for me and gave me total support. I think, I mean, I, I, had, a, I had a policy yin. I always think in, you go into politics um, and desiring to, wanting to do things to achieve change, and if you don't have those things in mind, you eventually... Mm. I think just uh, wither away and, and that kept me going. Some of the most productive years I had in politics were the early 90s when, when John Hewson became leader, he was good enough to make me um, a spokesman on industrial relations and that was something I was really interested in and I got incredibly yeah. and involved. And helped set the agenda. Yeah, yeah I did and I enjoyed that yes. and, I, and I felt I was having an impact and making a change. Mm. And in 93, uh, I remember um, uh, the night before the election, um, I had dinner at the home of our very, very close friends, Donald and Janet McDonald, and I was contemplating the possibility of being industrial relations minister in the Houston government. And I was hoping we were going to win. And unfortunately we didn't, but it was a great time. And, and I enjoyed the yes. thrust yes. Of, of the debate. Debate with um, you know, Peter Cook, late Peter Cook, who I think was the industrial relations minister. Mm. and. Uh, uh, Jenny George was then the head of the ACTU, so it was a, in a very interesting mm. time, and there was it was a real contest of ideas. Mm. Mm. And um, I remember one time there was a poll published in the Australian, which said finally a majority of of, of, of Australians accepted the notion that um, uh, people should have a choice uh, as as to whether or not they. Uh, belong to a, a union supported award or not. And I thought we'd made, made progress, but then- A the, prominent champion of industrial relations reform, but a new uh, term entered the Australian political lexicon in 1996, the Howard Battler. Mm. You won over a lot of traditional Labor Party, working class folks. How did you do that? Well, I think one of the things that appealed to, I hope appealed to that, that group of the population is that they are fundamentally people who are very patriotic. Mm. They're people who uh, are interested in outcomes. Uh, they didn't like being told that the, um, uh, the really important things, in, important though they are, uh, the really important things were engagement with Asia, important though that is, uh, aspects of reconciliation uh, and, and the Republic. And that's mm. not to say there isn't a legitimate debate in this country about whether or not we become a Republic. You know my views on that, I'm against it, mm. but I accept that close to half the population then was in favour of it. And, and you've, you've always got to respect that. But I, I, I think there was a feeling that um, uh, some of the policies of the former Labor government were out of touch mm. with the aspirations of people. And on top of that, living conditions had deteriorated. Mm. Interest rates, as you said, mm. were very high. Mm. Unemployment mm -hmm. was still very high. And the economy was still stagnant. We still had an enormous amount of debt. And that was filtering down to people. And yes. I found as I moved around, there was a real desire for change. And I, I felt the then government was talking about things that weren't very relevant to yes. them. Yeah, I think George Megalodunas, among other journalists, actually conceded that when Keating would talk <laughs> about Mabo and Asia and the Republic, They'd want to worry about their kitchen table concerns. Well, it's not that they were indifferent to that. I mean, yeah. you could. I mean, we nobody, no Australian prime minister can be indifferent no. to our links with Asia. I mean, after all, uh, uh, China's uh, market helped save Absolutely. us in not 2008. Yeah, uh, Paddy McGuinness, uh, friend, long-time friend of ours. He's 
passed away more than a decade ago, former financial review editor, he said that you won over key segments of the blue-collar vote to the Conservative cause by delivering security and prosperity and reasserting traditional values based on a robust patriotism. Do you see a lot of this happening right now in Britain, given that Boris Johnson's Tories smashed Labor's red wall in Northern England and in the Midlands in late 2019? Well, I'd like to think that Boris you know, slavishly copied <laughs> my example. I don't think he did. I think the reality is that in all of our societies, and there are similarities yeah. but also big differences, there are those issues where people feel if their political leaders are talking about things that don't directly relate to their daily lives, they lose interest in them. And I think you know, particularly a British Labor Party uh, led by Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, it'd be a different matter mm. uh, with, a, with a different leader, with Keir Starmer. I think it'd be a, a much bigger challenge. But the, the other thing you've got to remember, of course, about, about um, Australia is that we are still very much a middle-class society and it's one of the biggest assets we have. Our middle class is bigger than the middle class in Britain. I don't mean in, in nominal terms, yeah. but in yes. proportionate terms yes. or in the United States. And we don't have the gaps between the rich and the poor to the same degree as the Americans and the Brits. So what's allowed Johnson to tap into this working class constituency and to some extent Donald Trump in the United States is because a lot of these folks are displaced in a way that the working class here is not. That's your point. Well, I think, you know, if you, I mean, could I just say in Donald Trump, We've got to have a sense of reality about what he achieved. He did win one election, but unlike some of his Republican predecessors who he has derided, yes. such as my friend George W. Bush, he lost the second time. Mm. And uh, I, think, uh, I think we do ourselves, if we think we're conservative, a disservice in thinking that he was a conservative. I don't think he really was, but anyway, that's Okay, now you, you and Peter Costello... Uh, attracted global acclaim with your economic record. I mentioned the tax cuts and the tax reform and balancing the budget, wiping out the government debt. Of course, the COVID pandemic over the last year has meant that the size and the scope of the federal government really around the world has increased dramatically, including under uh, a Morrison government. How worried are you about this huge increase in the power of the state during the course of the last year? Well, I'm like everybody um, who has, I hope, a balanced attitude towards economic management, I am worried. But um, provided the government doesn't make the mistake of maintaining the emergency measures beyond the emergency and, and, and sticks to the timetable about winding certain things back, uh, I think it's manageable. But it does depend very heavily on growth. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly when we're living in an era of low interest rates. I'm not quite as optimistic as some, um, uh, including the current governor of the Reserve Bank, about uh, interest rates remaining low for not an indefinite period, but I worry a little bit about the, uh, some of the turmoil on the bond market yes. and, and the longer term interest rate implications of that. But we do live in very low interest rates. There's not a person in this room who's known lower interest rates either on the borrowing side or, may I say, the deposit side. I mean, anybody who's got their money in the bank at the moment wanting a decent interest rate, no, it's not going to happen uh, in a while. Um, but I, we've got to stick to the discipline of winding back the emergency measures. We've got to focus on uh, anything that encourages growth. Um, and um, uh, we want to continue when it comes to trade policy to... Um, uh, play to our strengths in the export markets. That's why I'm uh, 
you know, even more down on those people who are running around talking about phasing out coal and mm. so forth. Uh, uh, we just can't afford to do that at the present time. Some of our friends, such as uh, Greg Sheridan, the journalist, uh, Tony Abbott, the former Prime Minister, say that now's the time to redevelop a manufacturing sector so we're less reliant on these... Um, look, these look, look, that How is, would you respond to that? Look, it's a terrific um, maxim. It's a terrific aspiration. But you can't... Um, unless we resort to the discredited policy of, of picking winners and investing taxpayers' dollars in those winners, you can't do it absent the right economic conditions. And we have lost manufacturing in this country, there's no doubt about that, but we lost it because we had a high cost structure. We <laughs> lost it because some of the things you said about our waterfront, we lost it because of the uncompetitiveness of, of many of our older manufacturing. Now, I'm all for it, but it's not something you can <clears throat> accomplish by some kind of government fiat. You have to have the right economic conditions for it. Now, you have been a long-time supporter of economic reform, both mm -hmm. in opposition and in government, and since you lost office. You once said, and I think this is a wonderful quote, you've likened economic reform to competing in a never-ending foot race. Quote, you know you will never reach the finishing line, but you dare not stop because your competitors will surge past you. Given all of this, uh, what did you make of the Prime Minister's recent dismissal of any suggestions of making his own political history with tax reform as vanity projects, unworthy of much effort because they are too unlikely to happen? John Howard. Yeah, I, I didn't quite see that as, as definitive as you obviously did. Um, I think uh, so famous well, man... Well, it just means a financial uh, review in the uh, Australian uh, too. Yeah, I know, but they're, uh, they're not always... They're usually right, but not always. <laughs> <clears throat> and on this... And I, I can understand the Prime Minister's um, focus mm. uh, on the immediate challenge. Recovery. And that, uh, recovery. Mm. And, and, and the greatest contribution we can make to you know, reducing that mountain of debt uh, is, is to have a strongly based recovery. And the recovery, all the indications are, Tom, that the recovery out of the downturn has been stronger and sharper than people Well, could. today we got the fourth quarter uh, growth statistics, 3.1%, yeah, yeah. which yeah. defied odds. Yeah. Which, which, which mm. so, so I think, you know, so mm. far, mm. <clears throat> and I, but I think um, uh, Morrison and Frydenberg have done an outstanding job in managing it, and I, I have no argument with the stimulus that was provided on the understanding that it will be wound yeah. back. OK, OK, but just no keeping back on the toes, this is Robert Carling, our distinguished senior economist, former Treasury economist, um, at the Commonwealth and State, he says in this paper, quote, based on the recent round of the 2021 budgets, general government gross debt is projected to balloon from 817 billion in June 2019, <coughs> it's 42% of the GDP, to 1.75 billion in June 2024, which is 80% of GDP. So surely this is a problem because of the risk of higher interest rates and the burden on future taxpayers. <clears throat> yeah, look, that, that I, I can't sort of contest the proposition that it's a problem, but can I refer you to an article just before Christmas in, in, in the English version, the English part of a magazine, The Spectator, uh -huh. that you used to edit, which was um, penned by Mervyn King, uh -huh. uh, the predecessor of Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and he argued that, that provided um, the emergency measures he's talking in the British context, and they have been less successful and I think less responsible with their 
measures than we have been, but a broadly similar approach, that provided their structure, he was relatively sanguine about the capacity of the British economy, which has taken a much heavier battery. Now, I have a lot of respect for King. He's mm. like any economist. He's got his view. He's sometimes right and he's sometimes wrong. But he did, of course, um, uh, live through and operate through the global financial crisis and was the principal advisor to Gordon Brown, who was British Prime Minister at the time, and who most people give a lot of credit to uh, for uh, some of the initiatives he took in response to the... 2008 crisis. So, of course, you can quote, I mean, it's one of these situations where there's a lot of substance in fundamentally conflicting views yes. because we can't be certain. It all depends on timing. Yes. And the reality is that so far, the measures taken by the Australian government have been very sound. It was a big risk to inject JobKeeper and all of that, but it was very, very necessary. And if it hadn't been done at the time, then we would have been further plunged into recession. And the fact that we're coming out more quickly uh, and more sharply gives people a lot of confidence. So you'd agree with uh, Jonathan Friedland from the left-wing Guardian newspaper who argued at the height of the crisis a <laughs> year ago that just as there are no atheists on a sinking ship, there are no free marketeers during a pandemic. Oh, that's a glib phrase. But you'd agree with that, essentially. Yeah, uh, no, I'd, I'd, no, no, there, look, there are some, there are plenty of honourable free marketers, including, I'm sure, some in this room who think Josh Frydenberg went too far. Yeah. I mean, I Indeed. have to plead Gulli yeah. and say he did speak to me about it, and yes. as he was happy to say, he said, John Howe thought it would. Well, I mean, I do, and yeah. I'm not going to walk away from that. And, and, and if it falls in a heap, well, I'll have egg on my face too. Now, let's address some of the social issues that, that, um, that uh, dominated uh, some of your prime ministership that have now become the mainstream, including in the Liberal Party, uh, the apology to Indigenous Australians. Well, I haven't altered my view on that. I, I, I don't believe that one generation can apologise for the deeds of a past generation. I, I had other reasons. I thought um, the, the article that um, Noel Pearson wrote in The Australian on the eve of the apology, when he said that he was very conflicted. He said, on the one hand, people were wrongly taken in chains from their family. In other hands, they were rescued mm. and others found their salvation um, with, with white families. Others um, uh, had a life of misery and he was very conflicted. The truth is, though, it's happened. And, and you know, I'm not going to... Can't take it back. No, no, and yeah. I, yeah. you don't sure. do that. Sure. And I'm going to revisit it. Okay. And, and I respect the fact that a lot of Indigenous people were, drew comfort from it. Yes. Um, uh, but my, my own view is, is, is the same. I don't believe that I was mistaken in the attitude I took. Same-sex marriage? Well, I voted against it um, in, in, a, in, an, in, in an imperfect uh, uh, plebiscite, but the majority of people clearly wanted change. That's happened. And, and uh, as long as um, the, the proper sensitivities of people who have uh, a traditional view about marriage are respected, um, then life goes yes. on. It's interesting. I remember having a discussion with Stephen Harper, the Canadian Prime the former Minister. Canadian Prime Minister. Mm -hmm. Stephen had the same views as I did yes. on this, and I talked to him about it, and it was changed in Canada a lot earlier, and he said, John, I didn't like it, but he said it's happened, yes. and, and the world in Canada has not come to an end. It is interesting. If you go back to that postal vote in 2017, mm. uh, a lot of those <laughs> metropolitan liberal safe seats voted strongly for same-sex marriage, mm. but if you went out to... 
out of outskirts of Sydney and Melbourne and uh, a lot of Labor seats uh, yeah. with big working class and mm. uh, ethnic mm-hmm. constituencies, they voted against same-sex mm. marriage. And similar <laughs> dynamic with the Republic in 99. A bit. The, oh, the Republic was interesting in, 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 in all of the inner city seats, whether they're Labor or Liberal, voted yes. Um, from my point of view, by the time we'd got to Borgham Hills and Cronulla, yeah. common sense had prevailed. Let's talk about... <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about today's cultural debates. Last week you gave a a, a talk to the Family Voice Australia Mm. and you've called for, quote, people in authority to more actively oppose woke culture that is trying to alter society in the country. Tell us more. Oh, look, I think every time you have an outburst of uh, abolishing terms like brother and sister and mother and father from the public service or anywhere else, a prime minister and a premier just sort of bang it on the head. That's my view. Yeah. Well, Qantas a few years ago, I think, with Alan Joyce, didn't they? Uh, they asked their staff to beginning to be use gender neutral yeah, well, uh, language. I mean, of all customers. that sort of stuff affront, affronts the common sense of 85, 90% of the community, whether they vote Labor or Liberal. I can, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, if you if you really want to connect with with middle Australia, and that's a lot, most of us on issues like that. I mean, this is not discriminating against minority yes. groups. I mean, I, gender, you know, preferences and everything is a matter of, of individual choice, but, but uh, to, to even contemplate yes. interfering with such time-honoured expressions is ridiculous. The, the defenders of cancel culture, not that they, and by the way, uh, my colleague Peter Curdy has written a very good paper on this question about cancel culture, mm. um, cancel how ideological cleansing threatens Australia. We've been big mm. on this issue over the last few years. I think admittedly it's probably a bigger problem in America and Britain than it is here, but it's happening here. Mm. But the defenders of cancel culture, not that they'd call it cancel culture, they'd reply and say to you that uh, attitudes have changed and that marginalised groups uh, are starting to gain equal footing in society. What's wrong with that? Well, I, I, I don't think what I'm saying is offensive to marginalised groups. I mean, the, the idea that you would even contemplate replacing mm. um, a generic description such brother or sister with, with some convoluted exercise in abominable English is just absurd. <laughs> oh, well, I think the broad cross-section of this room would agree, but where are the political figures in Canberra saying these things? Well, I don't, I mean, I, maybe... I, look, I've, you asked me my view, I've given my... And it's not just... <laughs> In Canberra, this is some. It's a lot of this stuff yeah. is happening at a state level, and and yes. you know I'm a little bit disappointed with the with the rather tepid uh, approach of the Victorian opposition to some of this stuff yeah. in Victoria. The ABC, some Liberal partisans joked that on the night of your landslide election victory uh, in '96, and of also your election victories in '98 and 2001 and 2004, that. Kerry O'Brien and his colleagues were staying away from sharp objects. Um, but um, you've been critical of the public broadcaster, e- even when you were Prime Minister. Mm. Um, has the ABC, in your judgment, improved its current affairs uh, <coughs> since 2007? No, I don't think so. But can I say, you mentioned Kerry O'Brien. I'll say, I mean, Kerry O'Brien sort of, and I hardly agreed on any major political issue, but I respected um, his, his sort of dogged uh, professionalism from his, own, from his own point of view. And I actually enjoyed interviews yes. with him and I was always willing to cross swords with him because 
He, he, yeah. he ran a serious current affairs program. He did his research. Yeah. I didn't agree with his conclusions, but he was always in. There were lively, li- he, lively he was exchanges. always in for a spa. Yes. And that's yes, but important. you haven't answered my question properly about the ABC yes, today. Yes, I thought I did right at the beginning. Well, well, could, you, could you elaborate? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I, I, get, I sometimes get the impression that the, uh, the ABC News at night, which uh, I, I still watch, sort of has a you know, quota of, to be filled of particular subjects. And, yeah. and you know, there's a, obviously climate change features very strongly. And, and uh, you know, I did some research the other day to mark the 25th anniversary of Gough Whitlam's election, December 1997. Mm. ABC's AM, PM, 7.30 and Late Line had special tributes. Yesterday there was nothing on the ABC about your 25th anniversary. Um, I think I was out walking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll go to questions very soon, but we've got to talk about foreign affairs. Of course, yes. September marks the 20th anniversary of the September 11 terror attacks that culminated in the US, British, Australian interventions in Iraq and <laughs> Afghanistan. So Max Hastings, the distinguished British historian, I know you've read and enjoyed some of his books. He said, quote, in recent years, we've tried to help make Afghanistan and Iraq democratic law-abiding societies at vast cost in blood and treasure. We have gotten nowhere. We have attempted to make the Afghans behave in a more civilised fashion, for instance, by treating their women better and failed. So Max goes on to say, if our experiences in Afghanistan and Iraq since 2001 have paid one big dividend, it is to teach us how dangerous it is to meddle in alien societies. That's Max Hastings on what Donald Trump called the endless wars. John Howard. Well, Hastings is wrong uh, to characterise the intervention in Afghanistan as meddling in failing societies. It was a preventive measure taken to ensure as best American allies could that September 11 would not be repeated. Mm. It was the overwhelming intelligence at the time was that at the, the Al-Qaeda attack in September 2001 had been formulated inside Afghanistan, aided and abetted by sections of the security forces in Pakistan, uh, which was close to then being a failed state, uh, and, and, and not a great deal has changed since. Now, so his, his, his basic premise is wrong. It was not, at the beginning, uh, an intervention to impose democracy on Afghanistan. Now, obviously, when you get involved, um, uh, <clears throat> circumstances can change, but by the time we'd withdrawn our forces from Afghanistan, uh, clearly there was a basis for believing that another terrorist attack would not occur. We all forget that in the months that followed September 11, the greatest fear in the minds of Americans was that there would be another attack. Mm. They were so shocked, uh, and, and you know, a number of people in this room, including my good friend Max, who were there in Washington on the day it, it, it occurred. Mm. And, and, you know, the, the reality is that people feared there was going to be another attack. But could one support the intervention in Afghanistan for the reasons you mentioned and still oppose the war in Iraq? Oh, Owen yeah, Har- I accept Owen Harris, a former yeah, CIA yeah, well, you, were, you were one, yeah. Yeah, but they'd say, what did Saddam Hussein ever do to Australia other than buy our wheat? How would you respond to that? Don't say that again. How, what did Saddam Hussein, the Iraqi dictator, ever do to Australia? This is what Owen Harry said, other than buy our wheat. Yes, but you could sort of, you know, with great respect to, 
the late Owen and others. I mean, you can personalise that in relation to Kaiser Wilhelm and uh, uh-huh. and 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 uh, uh, other other German leaders, far more rodeous, who followed him. But um, uh, the, the reasons for intervening in Iraq were different from, yeah. uh, and and they were a bona fide belief based on intelligence, which in my view was not deliberately manufactured. No. No. Uh, it was erroneous because... And Kevin Rudd supported it too. In uh, oh, Kevin Rudd yeah. uh, uh, said it was an empirical fact yes. that... Um, uh, yeah. uh, I suppose that... The, Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. The, the realist Scowcroft argument would be that Saddam was a brutal tyrant but yeah, could have been contained the way it yeah, had been since the previous and, and, and that's a okay. point of view that um, I can understand and respect. Nevertheless, Iraq... Uh, these endless wars, as Trump called it, are among other things that have culminated mm. in this crisis in the United States. I want to ask you about America. Yep. The challenges are daunting. We have a pandemic that has killed more than 500,000 Americans, the greatest economic crisis since the Great Depression, and widespread racial and cultural tensions. Are you an optimist or a pessimist about America? Oh, well, I'm still an optimist. Um, I think people who say that America is now experiencing the worst crisis in the Civil War are wrong. Uh, I, I'm old enough, as a lot of people in this room are, to remember the 1960s, the turmoil caused by the Vietnam War. Mm. 1968, Lyndon Johnson you know, gives up the presidency because of Vietnam. Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy are murdered. Uh, you have cities burning. Mm. Uh, the place is completely convulsed. You have the you know, Kent State um, uh, tragedy where four students were killed by the National Guard. Um, th- th- I mean, there's no comparison. And, I mean, I, I think we have to sort of you know, take a deep breath mm. uh, when it comes to alarmist talk about American society. What, what about public confidence in institutions in America? It does appear to be rock bottom, especially when you have a significant segment of the electorate who don't accept the winner of the last presidential election. Yeah, well, I mean, I am highly critical of Donald Trump's behaviour, uh, both in relation to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he failed the test that... Scott Morrison and Gladys Berejiklian have met magnificently. When there's a common threat, mm. people look to their leaders to provide a response. Mm. Now, he did not provide a response. I, I believe that if Trump had handled that better, he may well have won the election. Mm. Uh, I think his behaviour after is equivalent to somebody who's in a cricket match and the umpire's finger goes up, you fail with the DRS and you still stay on the field. Now, he, he, uh, he should have left and, and I think he's done in long-term damage to the conservative cause in the United States because of that. I, uh, you know, having said all of that, I needed a lot of good things. Mm. And if I'd have been an American, um, uh, I, I, I could probably still have voted for him in preference to, uh, to, to Biden on policy grounds. But I think his behaviour since has been okay. very, very poor. China, uh, final question before we take questions. Uh, obviously, our relationship with China boomed <laughs> during your tenure. Um, so I think shortly just after you left office, it became our largest trade partner and the relationship's gone from strength to strength, at least until recently. Given that China is self-evidently converting its economic might into strategic clout, do you think that maybe we look back at that period and think we've been feeding the beast? No, I think we have to understand that what's happened in relation to China is the mentality of the Chinese leadership towards the rest of the world has changed. There's no comparison between Xi Jinping's attitude to the rest of the world and that of, of Jiang Zemin and Hu, Hu Jintao. We, we, we dealt with, uh, I, I dealt with both of them as president. Their whole attitude, although true to the communist faith, 
was they wanted to get on with the rest of the world, mm. and, and and whereas Xi Jinping is very different. I I don't blame the government for the difficult relationship with China. I mean, you might argue about this or that phrase, but fundamentally the change has come from China. It's a huge challenge because China is a very important part of our economic future. And, and uh, let's, let's remember how important that trade with North Asia was in, in, in 2008 and later on, uh, second only to the uh, large bank balance that Peter Costello and I left behind. But how do you respond to the critics like your Paul Keatings, your Bob Carrs, your Jeff Rabies, the former ambassador to China, who say, the onus is on, on Canberra to rebuild trust with the CCP. Well, I think they fail to accept that, in a sense, China is using um, Australia as a bit of a proxy punching bag uh, for its hostility to the United States. We are seen as a very close, quite correctly, yep. as a very close ally of the United States. And uh, it's a difficult issue, this, and I, don't think it will be solved. There's no silver bullet. This idea that mm. all Scott Morrison has got to do. I mean, if Bob Carr is saying all Scott Morrison has got to do is ring up Xi Jinping and say, Mr. President, can we sit down and have a discussion to solve all our problems? I mean, he's deluding himself. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. And, and there's a clear change in Chinese policy. And I think the response thus far of the Biden administration towards China is good. I'm encouraged by mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. it. It's, it's not too different mm. from the um, approach of the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. And I think um, uh, it's, it's undoubtedly the greatest foreign policy challenge we have. But you have to see it in the context of the Chinese-American relationship, which still will dominate the world for years to come. Indeed, now it's time for Q&A and our first question comes from Joanne Tran. She's an arts law student at Macquarie and she's also a research assistant at CIS. Joanne. Mr Howard, I was born in 2002, six years after you became Prime Minister. <laughs> Since then, community <laughs> perception has changed quite a lot on immigration. Two key political events during your political career were your remarks about immigration during the late 1980s and as well as your tough stance on Tampa in 2001. In hindsight, is there anything you would have said or done differently? Oh, I think the, <clears throat> the remarks I made in, in the late 80s, I think you're referring to those references I made to Asian immigration, is that? Um, That's correct. Yeah, I, I think um, uh, I, I, I could have expressed that differently. Uh, but you've got to remember, what I said was I didn't express opposition to Asian immigration. I just said that if the Asian immigration at the time was seen by some people as being too great, maybe the volume should be changed. But I think it, it, it was one of my uh, uh, more mistaken um, uh, contributions to debate. Uh, as far as Tampa is concerned, I thought what I did then was absolutely correct. Uh, and, and it had, not only was it right, but it, was, it had the support of the Australian public. And one of the things you've got to remember about immigration is that if, the Australian public believes that immigration is under control. In other words, the government knows who it's letting in, where they're coming from, and they're making a contribution to the future of the country. They will support immigration. But if they think they're losing control, they will withdraw that support. And that is, I think, one of the things that uh, produced the outcome of the Brexit referendum. Mm -hmm. um, and um, 
and, and if you look at migration during the time I was Prime Minister, both as to the volume and the sources, I think that would give the lie to any suggestion that uh, I brought considerations of race uh, into migration Sorry, of this country. If you look at the, uh, the five or six years after the Tampa asylum seeker standoff, the mm. legal non-discriminatory immigration actually doubled. Oh, yeah. Mm. Which is your point. You get confidence yeah, in the yeah, system. Yeah, it was, mind People you, had confidence in it. They had confidence in the system. But mind you, these days there seems to be a bit of a unity ticket emerging both sides of politics, you've got people like Christina Keneally, the former New South Wales Premier, Labor Senator, Tony Abbott, saying that we should uh, cut the shape and size of our intake. And this is what Abbott says, it's hurt many Australian workers contributing to unemployment, underemployment and low wage growth. Keneally talks about cutting immigration to deal with urban congestion in Sydney and Melbourne. Yes, you can always have a debate about the size and composition and, and you shouldn't be reluctant to... Uh, cut. I mean, we cut the migration rate when we first got into government. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and, and interestingly enough, some of the advice we had from Treasury at the time was that if you, if, if you cut the, the rate, it would save money. And then later, the Treasury advisor, I have to say, seemed to change, saying that under no circumstances should you ever cut uh, migration. I left, that left me a little confused. Next question. Peter Tulip is one of our economists. Planning restrictions harm housing affordability. It's a recent policy paper. Peter, who's formerly with the RBA. Thanks, Tom. Um, so, Tom, you actually listed a whole lot of economic and social variables that got better under the Howard government. And one thing conspicuously absent from that list was housing prices, which, just, which continued their inexorable trend up. Mr Howard, you famously observed that, no, that people don't stop you in the street to complain about house prices. No. And I wondered whether that is part of our problem that the next generation seem to be being increasingly locked out of the housing market and their voice doesn't seem to be represented in the political process over housing. I was wondering if you had any observations on that. Well, I think that's right and I think it's been right for a very long time. Um, but I do think that what is still not appreciated enough is that it's often state-based, local government-inspired microeconomic conditions that add to the cost of housing. Um, people, years, for years and years, they said, oh, the solution to the housing problem is interest rates. Well, the housing problem, I mean, it's, it's not. I mean, interest rates now are lower than they've ever been, uh, and, and, and that's not a contribution. But I've, I'm, I'm reminded, your question reminds me of um, some testimony that the then Governor of the Reserve Bank, Ian McFarlane, who uh, I found about the most outstanding economic advisor in the time that I was in government, uh, gave to, a, to some parliamentary inquiry. He said that he thought the contribution of planning or, or lack of planning uh, uh, and costs imposed on developers and the like made a greater contribution. This is a huge um, challenge for any government, for any country, but I don't think there is a single magic bullet to it. And I, I mean, we've tried first homeowners grants and so forth. Uh, I, I'm interested in the debate that Dominic Perrottet has initiated, you know, the possible replacement of, of stamp duty with um, 
uh, land tax. I'll be interested to see what the reaction of the punters is to that. Um, I like the fact that he's out there arguing for some fundamental tax reform. And I also like the fact that people see tax reform as not only being the responsibility of the federal government, there's got to be some responsibility at a state level because some of the, the most uh, cumbersome, uh, unwieldy taxes we have in this country are to be found uh, at, at a state level. House prices, but the point I made obviously was that the principal asset most people have is their home. And, and uh, it's been true in every, just about every generation. The sooner you can get your home paid off, the better. Um, although it's perhaps not quite as pressing now with depending on when you borrow to buy your home than it might have been some years ago. But it, it's still the major asset in a huge middle-class society that most people have. Okay, next question, Tim James from the Menzies Research Centre. G'day, Mr Howard. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the quality and depth of people in politics, our decision makers in Canberra and in state parliaments around the country. The headline today in Janet Albertson's piece said, uh, normal people would be insane to enter politics. How are we going uh, on the challenge of getting quality people of merit and talent and substance into our parliaments across Australia? Well, I read that article. Um, it was a good, it was an interesting piece. I agreed with some of it and disagreed with other bits. I'm not as pessimistic about the quality. I look at the last election and, and, and some of the people who came in for the first time, I mean, Celia Hammond, who used to be the Vice-Chancellor of the University of uh, Notre Dame, wasn't it? She's become in as a member for Curtin, replacing Julie Bishop. Um, there have been some good people uh, come on in on the Labor side. Um, the girl, I'm sorry, the woman who took over from uh, um, Craig Laundie in Reed, a clinical psychologist, a very able person. And uh, we've had a number of people who've come in on our side in particular from um, uh, the military. Um, some years ago we had Andrew Hasty, and we've got the new member for Herbert. Uh, and, and, and a new fellow in Western Australia as well. Uh, I do worry, particularly at a state level, that we have too many people whose only career has been in politics. And, and I think there's a place for people who've served on political staff, but we shouldn't have uh, a disproportionate number. There's no substitute <clears throat> for having re real life experience. In, it doesn't matter what it is, it doesn't have to be a profession, you don't have to be a lawyer or a doctor, uh, uh, but you want to have real life experience, whether it's the public service or, 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 or working as a tradesman and the like. I mean, one of the things that struck me when I first went into Parliament and really impressed me was the number of self-taught trade union officials, people like Clyde Cameron and Jim Kavanagh and Reg Bishop, name if you know to some people in this audience, they had all had hands-on experience as tradesmen and union officials. They'd also uh, read a lot, they were self-taught, and I was amazed in you know, their, their, their breadth of knowledge. And they were a generation that I, I think is less influential now in the Labor Party. Um, they are people, you've got too many people who you know, go to university, then go to a union office, then go to politician's office, and then get a seat. On our, our side of politics, they might skip the union, but uh, uh, they, <laughs> they, they, they nonetheless 
Uh, it's the same pattern. And this is very relevant at a state level. And I do have to say that I agreed completely with her criticism of factionalism. I think the Liberal Party now is infinitely more factionalised than what it was 20 or 30 years ago. Now, there is nothing wrong with people in a political movement cohering behind a common value. But once a faction becomes um, a preferment cooperative, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. I'll give you this seat if you support me, nothing else. Once it becomes like that, you've got a problem because the merit principle is undermined. Now, I'm, I have to say I'm very uh, unhappy that uh, that uh, very capable Nicole Flint in, in Boothby in South Australia is going. She's a person of a lot of ability. I know her moderately, not, not real well, but that's that, those sort of things. But I'm not of the view that... You know, it's it's still an unattractive profession. I think it's a great profession. You're but that woman was subjected to some of the vilest abuse in organisations like Get Up and, and, and the extreme left that you can imagine. Flippant comment, perhaps. Matthew Paris, you've heard me use this before, to be, former British Tory yeah. MP, columnist, to be an MP is to feed your vanity and starve your self-respect. Oh, <laughs> you know, that's, that's easy to say. But, it, but he, he lost his seat, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I remember, right, and, 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 and because sometimes people, you know, invent these things to, right. to cover up for their own uh, inadequacy. And he was a wet Tory as well. He's certainly wet. I yeah. Remember. Julia Connor. Next question. Julia. At a recent CIS forum, Nick Griner was the speaker, and he commented that the membership of the Liberal Party was declining. Um, I'd like your comments on that, particularly in light of if you try and join the Liberal Party, quite an onerous performance, and the time taken to actually join um, makes it unreasonable. I was wondering what your opinion was of how that could change. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to say that, that I, to a significant extent, agree with your analysis. Mm. Nick is right in saying that membership has declined, but of course, membership of all sorts of organisations has declined. We are not, the generations below me in age are not joining generations. Um, you know, church, churches are not, people don't join church organisations much they used to, uh, political parties, union membership is down. Um, uh, sporting clubs still often have, have difficulty. And of course, social media has accentuated the individuality of people's existence, contrary to the people who, who boost social media and say it's wonderful. It, it, it encourages uh, mm. uh, individual focus rather than community focus. So I think that's a, a general observation that I would make. Uh, I think you talk about people finding it hard to join Sadly, that is true, and that is a product of factualism because if you get the wrong person, you get a person whose attitudes are different from the prevailing attitude in, in a local branch wanting to join, it might upset the balance. Now, I mean, I know it's, it's I mean, heavens above, this is true of the Labor Party too. I'm not, uh, uh, and because and the Labor Party has, has an, in a sense, a deeper divide between what I flippantly called Young Street, Annandale and High Street, Penrith. Um, 
and it is um, it is a, a challenge, and that's why, whilst accepting that people can cohere behind a common attitude, and there'll always be philosophical divisions, and I use the expression the broad church, and not all of my views on social issues were shared by all of my parliamentary colleagues. And when we had the referendum on the Republic, three of the four members of the leadership group of the Liberal Party campaigned for a Republic. Uh, now that's, that's fair enough. We held together. Uh, the right result was obtained, of course, but uh, uh, we held together. Uh, but I, factualism is at the core of the problem you speak of, and there is no escaping it, and it's a challenge for all political parties, and it will intensify mediocrity. Next question, Anjali Nadarajan. She's a research assistant at CIS. Greg Sheridan has argued in The Australian that if Western nations impose sanctions on the new military regime, this will push Myanmar into Beijing's arms and make it a client state of China. Should Australia follow in the footsteps of the US and impose sanctions on Myanmar, actively condemning the assaults on democratic freedoms and the perceived rise in autocracies, or should we, should we tread softly and focus on our strategic interests instead? Mm. Well, that's a hard question to give a flat yes or no answer to. <laughs> Sanctions are always a double-edged sword. Sometimes they have worked. Sometimes they've been terrible failures. You know, the experience with the sanctions in Southern Africa uh, 30, 40 years ago have still been debated. Some people thought, some people such as the late Bob Hawke thought they played a, a huge role in bringing down the apartheid regime. Um, that was a view that was not shared by some others, but you know, nonetheless, the apartheid regime was brought down. They were a clear failure in Rhodesia, or the old Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. Um, I, I would try, off the top of my head, I would, I would try diplomatic pressure, and I hope the Biden administration is doing that, and I think it probably is, because of his foreign policy team, I think he's got a number of people who have a good background uh, in Asia. Uh, and, but <clears throat> the, I mean, the thing about Myanmar, the emotion a lot of people have is disappointment uh, that the person everybody admired for so long was ultimately seen as having been too close uh, to the old guard. Um, but you've got to be very mindful of China uh, and, and the capacity of of, of misplaced sanctions to drive Myanmar or, uh, into the hands of the Chinese. Quite a difficult issue, yeah. though. Some scholars say that um, after the military coup in Thailand in 2014, the Obama administration imposed heavy sanctions on Thailand, that it just moved closer to China, <laughs> so much so that now Thailand, a US treaty ally, is buying submarines from China. Mm. So these are the very legitimate concerns. Yeah, they are. The and that's. I mean, I, I thought what happened in Thailand was terrible. And, and, and as a strong supporter of the constitutional monarchy in this country, that monarchy is not constitutional. <laughs> it's terrible. And, and I mean, that Les Majesty law is, is appalling. Well, As you know, for the best part of 20 years, education policy has been a big issue at CIS. I'm going to call on my colleague, Glenn Fay, who's one of our senior fellows in education, to ask the next question. Glenn. Hi, Mr. Howard. Um, more than probably just about any other Australian leader, your, uh, your interventions contributed more to expanding choice and competition for Australian families all across the country. If you were Prime Minister today, what would you advise your education minister 
And do you think there's any unfinished business in expanding choice and competition for Australian parents? Well, there's always um, unfinished competition. There's always unfinished business. But I think that the, the fundamental of the federal government's policy now, and it has, I think, a fair amount of bipartisan support, um, uh, perhaps not total, but it does, um, is right. I mean, we have 34% of, of Australian school children who are educated in the non-government sector. And the area that has grown most has been what I call the, the low-fee independent schools. Uh, and, um, I mean, I, I, I worked very hard when I was Prime Minister to support um, choice. One of the things I was proudest of in this area was the new schools policy. Because when I became Prime Minister, if you wanted to start a low-fee school in outer Sydney, if the area was already serviced by a government school and a Catholic school, you could start the school, but you wouldn't get government help. Now, I said about changing that, and I'm very happy to say that I would never have got that measure through the Senate if it hadn't been that, the support of Brian Harradine. Brian Harradine was absolutely true to his strongly held uh, Catholic views about freedom of choice in education. And I talked to him about it, and he said, John, you're absolutely right about this. And I'm very pleased with this growth, and I, I saw a manifestation of it in wearing my uh, Ramsey Centre hat a few weeks ago. I went to Wollongong and met the new cohort of students studying the Ramsey degree, and they were a wonderful representation of government schools, a load of modest fee independent schools, and, and a very large cohort from Catholic regional high schools. And, and only one or two from what you might loosely call high-fee independent schools. I just think we've got to keep going with the current policies uh, because they are working and they are giving people choice, but you've always got to bring it back to choice. And it's very important, though, that we sort out this um, uh, freedom of religion issue so that the faith-based schools, whether they're Catholic, Protestant, I saw the other day that a Sikh school is, uh, uh, is, is going to open, Jewish, Muslim, whatever, that they feel completely free to uh, you know, educate according to the basic tenets of their religious beliefs. Okay. I think we've got time for maybe one or two questions. Yes, sir. Uh, sorry, my name is David Pollack, Mr. Switzer, Mr. Howard. Approximately 20 years ago, Australia had the cheapest energy in the world and probably the highest labour rates. Now we've got the highest labour rates in the world and probably the highest energy. I fail to see totally how we can get small businesses to survive when the energy prices have literally gone through the roof. In other words, the process of decarbonising the economy is not a cost-free exercise. Well, I, you know, I, I agree with you. I, I'm, I have to say, I've said before, I'm a bit of an agnostic. Um, on, on, on climate change. Uh, there's no doubt that um, it was a mistake, I'm sorry to say, with bipartisan support for the Rudd government to, or the Gillard government to lift the renewable energy target from the 2% that my government introduced, and that may well have been in retrospect an error because it established the principle, but we kept it at 2%. 
and in, and in 2005 rejected a recommendation and it be lifted. Uh, I think that was an error uh, to lift it to 20%. I think it's added to the cost. And I mean, the, 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 the truth is that whatever views you have about the speed with which we reach the, the no emissions nirvana, um, if in the process we increase the cost of energy, it's going to have consequences. And that is clearly what has happened. And, and uh, uh, you know, I think the, the balance uh, that uh, Angus Taylor has articulated recently is, 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 is probably okay, but I think we are still um, burdened by the fact that we invested an enormous amount in the push, the artificial push, artificial push uh, towards renewables. And it goes back to my earlier point that whatever the end fate of coal and gas may be, uh, it'll be part of our energy future for quite uh, a while into the future. Okay, now for our vote of thanks, I'd like to call on my colleague, uh, Jacinta Namba-Jimba-Price. Please welcome her. Just before I do give the vote of thanks, I might cheekily ask one more question. Oh, please, yes. Mr Howard, if you were Prime Minister now, would you have allowed for the current voice to parliament process to continue as far as it has to this point? Probably not. Um, I think I'd have had a very clear, I've had a view at the beginning as to what I thought the outcome should be. I always think with these things, it's far better to have a, a view as to what the outcome should be. Um, I have no doubt that you can have a non-constitutionally enshrined voice arrangement. I think that's, a, um, uh, from a legal point of view, that's something that the former Chief Justice, Murray Gleeson, has spoken of fairly recently. But um, I, I think a constitutional entrenchment is going to be, I, I don't think it will get up. I really don't. And one of the things you've got to be concerned about here is the implications of rejection. Um, uh, if, if something like that is rejected, that will be um, characterised by some mm. and seen by many as being anti the interests of Indigenous people, whereas people for wholly legitimate uh, reasons of the way we govern our country might have reservations about it. I mean, the, the great thing about the 67 referendum was that it got 90% of mm. the vote. Mm. And, and at the same time, a proposal to get rid of the, the nexus clause between the House and the Senate was rejected in the same referendum. I can remember working on a polling booth in Campsie that day with, with the late Doug Sutherland, who was a Labor man, and we were both handing out the same how to yes. vote cards. Yeah. And, and one of our proposals got up by 90% and the other went down in a screaming heap. So the, the electorate's quite capable of discerning, but that's, you know, that's I hadn't thought about it, but, but that's my reaction. It is the lot of most Prime Ministers to operate within the parameters they inherit from their predecessors. But only a few Prime Ministers have led governments that have truly reshaped the nation. We all know about Curtin, Menzies, Whitlam and Hawke. John Winston Howard also falls into this very rare second category. Many of the sound conservative and classical liberal principles that John Howard articulated throughout his long career 
especially at his election victories in 1996, 1998, 2001 and 2004, have an enduring quality. His passionate belief in the virtues of the market, hard work, the entrepreneurial spirit, and in middle-class values, these were not passing fashions. The context in which he operated, though also determined his political and policy priorities. The Australia of 25 years ago was dogged by Paul Keating's recession we had to have record high budget deficits and debts and the monster of excessive trade union power, especially on the waterfront where the maritime union had held the nation to ransom whenever constructive industrial reform was attempted. Though today's policy challenges are different, there are still many lessons to be learnt from John Howard's memorable government. As Tom reminded us, in the Australian Financial Review this week, Howard was a politician who combined strong convictions with a streak of pragmatism. He was always prepared to risk failure rather than to take the easy choice. As he has reminded us this evening, John Howard's appetite for a fight on issues that matter to him is undiminished. We are lucky that at age 82 this year, he will go on delighting his friends and admirers and, with no less relish, infuriating his detractors <laughs> for a good while to come. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> let me conclude with something that John Howard once said about our national identity. It's something that helps shape my own thinking as head of CIS's Indigenous Affairs Program. Here's John Howard in 2007 the final year of his 12-year tenure as Prime Minister. Australians have made a lot of mistakes. We have treated Aboriginal people very badly and we have our share of racists and bigots. But a lot of the agenda of the cultural left in this country is basically that the past has been a disgrace, that we've achieved very little, we've become the most materialistic country in the world and that we're mean-spirited. We're pretty awful people and we should be ashamed of ourselves and start all over again. John Howard in 2007 counted. Well, I don't hold that view and the overwhelming majority of Australians don't hold that view. Indeed, they reject it. We spent too much time in the first half of the 1990s pondering whether we had to be whether we had to become less European so we could become more Asian, whether we had to become less British so that we could become more multicultural. We had this perpetual seminar on our national identity contributed overwhelmingly by the cultural dietitians. John Howard concluded, I never thought Australians had any doubts as to what their identity was. And I think we've moved on from all of that. We at CIS say amen to that. And with that, please join me in thanking John Howard this evening. Very good. Very good. Great stuff. Well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, mate. Very good. Thank you. John Howard. Well done, mate. Thank you. Thank you.